We'll open your Bibles to Psalm 90 this morning. We'll begin there in the introduction. We're going to end up uh, in Ecclesiastes 3. I want to show you something in Psalm 90 as we, we start. For the next three weeks, we're going to make a return trip to the land of wisdom. Uh, beginning in February, we're going to start our new exposition in the book of Daniel, which no doubt will be very helpful uh, to us. And uh, the Lord's just bringing a lot of things uh, together uh, after these few Sunday nights that, uh, that we have for family gathering. Also in, um, in February, uh, church history is going to be directed, uh, what we're doing on Sunday night, one of the, our equipping classes will be directed toward um, how you deal with, uh, the church deals with, with the culture, and, and then Grace and Granite just so happens that the, the topic that's next in our study is false teachers and false teaching in the church. And so we'll surely deal with a lot of cultural things uh, there. So the Lord has a lot in, in front of us to, to equip us and help us. But before we get there, we're going to go see Dr. Solomon and get a theology booster. A second dose of wisdom for navigating a fallen world, if you, you will. I noted a number of of, uh, of times this past 2020, just how gracious God was in putting us in the book of Ecclesiastes in 2019. And yet, uh, we find when, when we're, we're getting prepared for something that we don't even know is coming, uh, it's easy to overlook some things. And so we're going to go back there and get some reminders. And if the current events uh, of the past year have left you feeling a little weak in the knees or giving you spiritual vertigo, there's no better book to help us think rightly in a world that's all wrong than, than Ecclesiastes. So, and when all of that transpires, the first thing that we need to do is cinch up the, the theological rope around our, our waist so you don't drift off in the, in the currents. I mean, good theology is like a guide rope when, when you're out snorkeling in in deep water. It's there, so you always find a way to have a way to get back to the boat. And that's what these messages are, a biblical guide rope. Except when you look around you, you know that we're not snorkeling in the turquoise waters of the Bahamas. It's more like snorkeling in the Bering Sea. Um, and so during our brief return to the land of the curse, we're going to look at three passages to tie this rope tight. The first one we saw last week, there, there is a God and He is sovereign, I mean really sovereign, in Ecclesiastes 3. Today, there, there is a world and it is fallen, I mean crooked beyond straightening, and, and it's vexing. It's the second half of Ecclesiastes 3. And then there are tools that we must use uh, to live in a fallen world under the rule of a sovereign God and that's Ecclesiastes 5, and, that, and that's coming. And we'll start by thinking rightly, and then I'll give you the, the tools to place in your hands to work, and then we'll end it all with a, with a Q&A, with some specific questions, and you've got the, the information about how to submit those. Um, we want to get through as many as possible, and so that's why we're, we're doing that, and then we'll probably have more than, than one, depending on what comes in. All three of these messages go together. So if you get one and not the others, you're going you're to have an incomplete picture. And the book of Ecclesiastes is so helpful because it's a commentary on the curse that gives us wisdom as we, we live in it. I mean, life in a fallen world, if you leave God out, is meaningless, it's full of frustration, and it feels futile at times. 
But God's not left us without insight. And this conclusion about life is not unique to Ecclesiastes. I mean, lest you read the book of Ecclesiastes and you think that Solomon was just having a bad day whenever he wrote it, or he was disillusioned by his foreign wives, the Apostle Paul says the same thing about life under the sun. In Romans 8, he confirms that creation has been subjected to vanity and that we, we long for the day when the curses will be removed. Even, even creation groans and waits for the day of the, the sons of God. And he wrote that a thousand years after Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes. In Psalm 90 was written 500 years before Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes by a man that you all know named Moses. And he calls us to the exact same wisdom. Look, look at Psalm 90, verse 2, if you would, or if you don't have a Bible, you can look on the screen. Even from everlasting to everlasting, Moses said, You are God, and you turn man back into the dust. And say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. Sounds a lot like Ecclesiastes 3, doesn't it? There's a sovereign God who, who holds time in His grip, and yet man was placed under the curse, and his end is returning to the dust. And what does Moses say about life under the curse? Look at you at verse 10. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, and if due strength, 80 Yet their pride, the best of those 70 to 80 years, is but labor and sorrow. For soon it is gone and we fly away. It's short, 70 to 80 years. It's soon gone, we fly away. And the best of it, while here, is full of labor and sorrow. And Moses realizing that, what, what does he ask God for? Look, if you would, at verse 12. He asked for wisdom and knowledge and joy, just like Solomon. So teach us to number our days, that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Teach us. In this kind of life, in this kind of world. 14 and 15. Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us. And the years we have seen evil. I mean, you put Moses and Solomon and, and Paul together, you would think the Bible has one author, right? And indeed it does. And Moses says there's a curse and we need to look at it in the face so we can become wise and find satisfaction and joy in God alone and use His resources. And biblical tools are required to do that, which is exactly what Solomon is teaching us in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. So you can open there and we'll look at verse 16. Solomon has laid out a plan to teach us to number our days just like Moses called us to do. And after searching for meaning everywhere, he ends his search after chapter 1 and, 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 and 2, and, and he begins to provide us wisdom, some specific tools to how to live in, in, in this kind of world. And so he explained why life on earth was frustrating and why it feels vain. He reminds us that mankind cannot find satisfaction in this world because God has removed our ability. You will not find heaven on earth, you won't create heaven on earth, and you won't find satisfaction on earth apart from, from God. You are under a curse, the world is under a curse, and that's part of the curse, that, that you find no satisfaction. And number two, we learned last week that we're also frustrated because 
We've been created with eternity in our hearts. We, we have, we're, we're different from animals. And that brings a longing for something more. So we're on a perpetual search that, that will not end in a world that fails to satisfy. And we sense there is something permanent, but we live in a world that's passing away. And that's a recipe for futility and, and frustration. And yet God's not left us without help. So Solomon gives us tools to live in that kind of world. Unbelievers don't have these tools. They, they search and they search and they never find anything. And, and yet God has granted his followers some life hacks, if, if you will, to live under the curse and to enjoy God's gifts of life. I mean, if you learn these tools, they won't remove the curse, but they'll reduce your frustration in the effects of the fall, which is why I'm reminding you of them, of them today. And, and he gave us the most important tool of all last week, which is God's sovereignty. God's grip of time says he rules over everything and he will make it beautiful in his time, even a cursed world. And that's the most essential tool that we need to operate in a broken place. God is the one place you'll find stability while your feet move up and down on the shifting sands of the, of the curse. And you might under, not understand why he allows something, but knowing he does allows you to rest in all the areas where we see the curse so, so clearly. So Solomon teaches us to stop asking why and start asking how. How can I submit to you and trust you even in this matter? How do I believe? How do I stand on truth? For this too comes from your hand. That's the goal of Ecclesiastes. It's a, it's a wisdom book. And it brings us to acknowledge the fall and the impossibility of escape, and then it provides wisdom to, to live under it. So, so today, Solomon is going to, to give us some additional tools to, to deal with some specific parts of the curse. I mean, you might think of Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 through 15, like, like wisdom in the macro. It's the big picture. You know, God's grip. That's the big picture. God's sovereignty covers everything that Solomon will talk about. It's like the, the ratchet on it with a socket set and... And now he's going to attach individual sockets to, in order to, to help us. I mean, a ratchet without a socket is of, is of no value. I mean, saying God's sovereign helps, but, but it's incomplete without adding means, without giving us tools. What to do? And so now he's going to open up his toolbox and he's going to point out specific wrenches that we need to put in our hands when we face particular frustrations in life under the curse. And so today, you've got the, the ratchet. God's big, He's sovereign, He's in control, and now He's going to give you two sockets that you need, wisdom, to deal with injustice and one for, for death or a little time, a limited amount of time on, on work, uh, on, on our earth. And that, I mean, next week, political corruption, and then after that, some specific questions. But those are two frustrating areas, aren't they? Injustice or unfairness and the brevity of life to correct it. Two major vexations as a result of Genesis 3. And so Solomon gives us two tools that reduce the frustration of injustice and, and death. And the first one that he gives is trust in the Lord's tribunal in verses 16 through 18, and the second is, is the hope in, in heaven's tabulation, verses 19 through, through 22. The greatest tool is understanding God's sovereignty, but, but the second to that is always remembering God's justice is coming. 
So we must trust in the Lord's tribunal. If you didn't get this, you'll get it as we go through it. Look, if you would, at verse 16. Furthermore, so after talking about God's sovereignty, furthermore, look at where he focuses his eyes. I have seen under the sun. So he's talking about on the earth, and the curse. I've seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there his is wickedness. So after Solomon looks up at the sovereignty of God, who, who, who promises to make all things beautiful, he looks at life and, and he says, those two things don't seem to match. I mean, he looks around, and, and when he does, he sees injustice everywhere. He's been singing the song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, and, and when he did, the things of earth grew strangely dim, and when the chorus stopped, he, his eyes were brought back to the world that he lived in. And when he looked around, Solomon says, there's unrighteousness in the halls of justice. And he wonders, how does that sync with God's beautiful plan? I mean, he just told us that God's going to make things beautiful, and this doesn't look very beautiful, That's what Solomon's saying. And I'm sure you've had that experience, haven't you? I mean, you come to church and you hear about Jesus and you're full of hope and, and then you look at your phone in the parking lot and the headlines remind you the world that you live in. Or you go to the Lord in prayer in the morning and it's heavenly and, and it feels like your problems melt away and then you open your eyes to see the prescription bottle on your vanity. and You're reminded of the curse. And Solomon looks around us and he sees one of the most frustrating things about living in a fallen world. He says where justice and righteousness are supposed to be, there is wickedness. Is there anything more frustrating than that? I mean, there are things in this life that are just not right. Amen. And nothing that you can do will make them right. But that's frustrating. We go to where we're supposed to find justice, and at times we find the opposite. There's injustice, unfairness, inconsistency. It's not applied equally in inequity everywhere you turn. Lady Justice is supposed to be blind, but sometimes she peaks because the person is important. Or she turns away because you're not that important at all. Someone did something horrific to you and you finally tell some about, someone about it and they get off in a fallen world. People accuse others of doing horrendous wrongs that they didn't do and the social media mob ruins their lives and they lose their job. And you say, that's not right, and it's not. But that happens, doesn't it? Have you ever been subjected to injustice, falsely accused, wrongly convicted, victimized by someone, and they haven't paid the price? Solomon's talking to you. The courts are supposed to be the place where, uh, where the innocent should be proclaimed innocent and the guilty declared guilty. It's where someone righteous goes to be proven so. But instead, Solomon says, you go there expecting justice and you find injustice. And in the place of justice, there is wickedness. In fact, I don't know if you've thought about this, but God established the authorities, established courts and, and the authorities because of the fall, in order to help manage it. I mean, I know everyone's quoting Romans 13 these days in 2020. And it's actually just a general statement about God's purpose of, of authority. I'm sure one of the questions that you'll have is, well, what happens if they ask me to do something that, that I don't think I'm supposed to do according to, to God? 
Well, Romans 13 is, is just a general statement about why God has established uh, uh, authorities. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. There is no authority except from God and, and those which exist are established by God. God is the origin of, of authorities. What are these authorities supposed to do? Well, Romans 13.4 tells us. For it, that's the authorities, these governings established by God, they're, they're servants. They're a minister to God for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword in vain. For it's a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. The systems of human authority were designed by God. They were planned by Him. And they were supposed to encourage good and punish evil. That's their purpose. And when they, they don't do that, they're, they're not serving as God's servants. It's one of the instruments that God created to help mitigate the fall. Outside of the garden, the, the sword is there to... Does it change the heart? But it, but it, but it helps. I mean, we don't need Romans 13 if there's, if there's no fall, right? I mean... Structure of authority doesn't need to bear the sword if there's no sin in man's heart to wrong one another. I mean, the police officer doesn't need to carry the gun, uh, carry a gun if there's no if there's no evil, but there is evil. And the governmental system of justice is God's gracious dispensation to help us live in a cursed world. So when sin happens here on earth, we go there to look for relief. But Solomon says because of that same curse, they can also deliver the opposite as governing authorities. The very tool that God has provided to deal with corruption can be corrupted itself. That's what he's saying here. And that doesn't bring relief, it compounds misery. And Solomon says when that happens, when you look around and see that, it can just take the heart out of you. It makes you feel like the world is upside down, like it's, like it's futile to try. It can leave you disheartened. It can feeling helpless. Which is why he started with the greatest tool, God's grip. He's sovereign even over the fall. And now he's going to put a socket on that ratchet. So Solomon looks up again and reminds himself of something, which is the help we need whenever we look around and we see this. Look, if you would, at verse 17. I said to myself, he looks around and he sees this injustice where it's not supposed to be. And I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time for every matter and for every deed is, is there. He says the specific tool that you and I need to deal with injustice is trust in God's tribunal. Solomon reminds himself of a greater court system where only righteousness reigns. Human courts can dispense injustice, but God's court only dispenses justice. That's what he says. Now Solomon's just got done saying in verses 2 through 8 that God has established a time for, for everything. And now here in verse 17, he defines the time that God has, has established for justice. And it's not here. It's there. I mean, that is vital. I mean, do you see that? Everyone is talking about gaining justice now. I mean, they don't even know what, kind of, what they're talking about. Climate justice, social justice, justice here, justice there. And God says, this is not the place that you're going to find ultimate justice. You should, 
but there's a curse, and there are cursed people that are operating these systems, the perfect systems that God has created. You can define, uh, you can, you can put in place a perfect system, but if you put imperfect people in charge of them, you know what's going to happen. And because of the curse, you can't find justice. And so verse 17 is actually uh, uh, um, an application of verse 2, which says there's a time to die, and and what happens? There's a time for everything uh, under heaven, including judgment. And that happens at death, not before. That's what Acts 17 says. That's what Paul says. Remember Acts 17, Mars Hill? Therefore, having overlooked uh, the times of ignorance, have you ever wondered, wait a minute, how did God overlook sin? Well, it's not that he won't ultimately judge it, but he, he, he didn't bring immediate justice. But God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Why? Because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness, in justice, through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. God has appointed a day for justice and Paul's warning about what's coming to the unjust, and, and, and he gives the reason for them to repent. It's going to happen. It's coming. There's coming a day. It's the same thing that Solomon's doing here. It's coming a day. And so when you face injustice, you should do what is permissible by God to stop it. But the relief that you'll find comes from knowing God will use a perfect set of scales in the end. It's what will relieve the frustration. It won't totally remove it. But one day, no one is getting away with anything. No false accusations can stand before the courts of heaven with an all-knowing God. I mean, some of you say, I don't even know what to believe. I look at this, and, and it looks like this is happening, and I look there, and, and you, you can't trust the media, you can't trust anybody. Well, you can trust God. God sees it all. And while the world is unjust, Solomon says you can trust in the justice that God will bring, knowing that helps you deal with the unfairness. I mean, isn't it comforting to know that everything that is right will be confirmed one day and everything that is wrong will be dealt with? Even the unjust judges will face accountability themselves. The Lord is the judge of judges, and He's the King of kings. And for an unbeliever, injustice just drives them mad with rage. And, and they, they run off in all of these, 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 these ways and try to, try to fix it or it leaves them hopeless. And they, they, just, they just totally give up. But, but Solomon says that's not what believers do. Solomon says the, the answer to handling injustice in the world is remembering that God will judge the righteous and the wicked. And you say, now that, that helps some. I mean, I find comfort in that. But I have one of those why questions from last week rising in, in my mind. I mean, why do I have to wait so long for it? I mean, if it's wrong, why can't God bring justice now? I mean, this injustice hurts. It's, it, it's frustrating. I mean, I know my cause is right. Well, like he always does, Solomon anticipates our question and gives the answer. So look at you at verse 18. He said, I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they're but beasts. 
We all take comfort in God's perfect justice, but while we wait for it, our hearts ask, why the delay? I mean, you've asked that, haven't you? I mean, I know God is good, I know He'll judge, but, but why postpone it? I mean, when you hear about a false accusation, you know God condemns it, and, and you know He'll judge it, but and you know that, that, that it happens because of the fall, but you wonder why let it continue? Why is God taking so long and allowing evil to, to, to keep happening? I mean, we're celebrating sanctity of human life, and Pastor Bertie said we've been doing this since the 80s. It's 2021. Why is God allowing these things to continue to happen? Doesn't that question rise in your heart? I mean, why doesn't he judge now? And sometimes you even want to take it in your own hands. And Solomon answers our question. Notice he says, he's talking to himself. I said to myself, you're not crazy whenever you talk to yourself. You're biblical if you tell yourself the truth. Look at what he is talking to himself about. Literally, I said to myself, Concerning the sons of men, literally the sons of Adam. He's talking to himself about the fall. What about fallen people, Solomon? Well, he says they need to learn something. I said to myself, concerning the sons of Adam, God has surely tested them in order for them to see. They need to, they need to see something. They need to learn something. And what do they need to learn? They need to learn that they are that they're but beasts. Now, what does that mean? God is delaying, he says, so mankind can see something about themselves and, and about the, the Lord. The delay. Why? This is one of the places God answers your question of why. Solomon says the delay is so we can learn the truth about, about our condition. It's to learn something. Solomon is not saying that we need to learn that we're, we're, we're an animal. But Solomon says people act like they are. And God is delaying judgment, and that delay in the judgment allows us to see that, to see how sinful humanity really is. I mean, God says He delays judgment for one reason, is to expose the extent of human wickedness. And we're very slow to accept that. I mean, think about it. As the world continues, is it getting better or worse? We're more advanced than ever before, but we just use the new innovation to get into more sin. And when you're told that you're nothing more than an advanced animal, there's really no reason to restrain it anyway. And we wonder where all the morals have gone and why kids act the way that they, they do. Beyond the depravity in their heart, they're told that all day long in, in secular places that they're nothing more than animals, and so all they do is act like it. Darwin didn't invent his theory. It's right here in the Bible 3,000 years before he wrote The Origin of the Species. And Ecclesiastes teaches us where his theory ends. It brings beastly ethics. And the injustice that we see and the fact that God allows it to remain, that it goes on and on, is to prove to us we are not good people. No matter how much money we have, no matter how much prosperity, no matter how much intelligence... No matter how advanced we are, we don't, like, we don't act like God's image bearers when we impress others and, and we're unjust. So Solomon's answer to his own why question is similar. We need to learn something. 
Similar to what Jesus did in Luke 13. You remember in Luke 13, whenever the disciples are asking Jesus, there's the tower that falls on these unsuspecting people and it kills them. And then there's the the Galileans, these Jews that are actually worshiping and and, uh, the Romans send the authorities in and and their blood is mingled with their own sacrifice. And the the disciples say, "Uh, why, what about this calamity? Why did this happen to them? I mean, they were in church for goodness sake and they're killed. And then they start down the road of drawing a faulty conclusion. They, 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 they say, well, this is wrong that this happened. So why did this happen? Well, it must be because they're worse sinners than, than others, meaning they deserved it. You remember what Jesus says? He corrects their faulty thinking there. Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I'll tell you no. And unless you repent you will all likewise perish. You see what Jesus is saying? He's saying the same thing as Solomon's saying here. They, like us, wanted an explanation for the seeming injustice. And Jesus goes to the heart of the matter. And what we're tempted to think, injustice happens to others because they deserve it, but but not me, (laughs) because I don't deserve it. That's what we think. And Jesus says if you go too far down that road, you'll get distracted by what's coming for you because you're a sinner as well. And that's the reason that God allows injustice to remain. It doesn't mean that the evil that's perpetrated on us is right or it doesn't matter. I mean, He just told us God's going God's to bring a perfect scale to that. And it doesn't mean that you don't try to do something about it. Solomon just comforted us so that God will take care of that one day. His vengeance is much greater than anything that man can bring. But what we learn from injustice remaining in this world is that sin is present and we're reminded that we have the same disease. And we'll face judgment as well if we don't repent. So one of the reasons God leaves injustice, specifically sin in general, until the final judgment is as a testimony to us of how wicked we are so we don't think better of ourselves. The greatest injustice ever perpetrated was our rejection of God. And so God allows us time to repent. That's the second reason that He leaves it here. To teach us something about mankind and then to give us an opportunity to repent. Another reason God doesn't judge now is to allow men to repent here because when this bar comes, when God brings out these perfect scales, they won't be able to there. You won't be able to repent then. I mean, think about it. If God didn't judge in the future and He brought justice immediately, no one would have a chance, would they? I mean, Adam and Eve wouldn't have made it out of the garden. We wouldn't even be here. And you wouldn't have made it out of the womb. I mean, Psalm 58, 3 says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They speak lies. They go astray from birth. They have venom like venom uh, venom of a serpent, like a a deaf cobra that stops up its ears. And you have kids, or you know some. You know the psalmist is right. You don't have to teach them to do wrong. Whenever you tell them to to do right, it's like they stop up their ears. They don't listen. The Bible says we're born sinners, and, and by nature we're children of wrath. We're born sinners, and in our nature we, we draw God's wrath. And you want justice now? You don't want justice now. You want mercy now. You want justice later. Because if God didn't delay His justice, 
including for people outside of Christ, we would die long before we could experience any injustice from others. Don't imagine yourself better than whoever, the politicians or, or, or whatever. You might find some area where you excel above them, but you're not measured in their shadow, but, but in God's light. I mean, the measuring stick is his high bar, not their low brow. And, and compared to God, we all fall, fall short. And that doesn't mean nothing matters. It means that everything will matter one day. And the delay is so you'll repent. And also to show us God's mercy. It's the third reason. The why question. It's interesting, isn't it? The one place that God answers the why question deals with, with injustice. Because it's something that's so frustrating to us. God delays judgment to also show us how merciful He is. Show us we're sinners. To give us time to repent and show us how merciful He is. I mean, the Bible says God is long-suffering and He's merciful. And, and that's most evident whenever He delays His justice. Exodus 34, uh, where God reveals Himself, he, he, he says the, He's compassionate, He's gracious, He's slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. And, and yet, He says, He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. God says His judgment is coming, but first mercy is offered. And that long-suffering mercy is held out for a very long time. So be careful wishing too much for, for justice to come, because when you're doing that, you're shortening the, the, the days of mercy, and you need it. So do others. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9 says, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient, long-suffering toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God wants you to repent. He desires it. I'm here to plead with you on His behalf. What an amazing, merciful God there is. And think about it. When we focus on, norm, on injustice, we normally think about ourselves. We rarely think about God. We think about that person sinned against me, sinned against something that's important to me, but we don't consider that God is the one who was most offended. Because He was sinned against before you were, greater than you were, and even by you as you disregarded Him in your self-focus. And a sinner's unrighteousness thumbs its nose in God's holy face. And yet God, even offended, delays, 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 giving ample time for repentance, showing His mercy. And He has to delay His justice to do that. If you never turn to Christ, that mercy is on display right now. And yet one day, that mercy will burn its last oil and, and, and all that will be left is a memory of that. And, and then comes your eternal reward, good or bad. It's a tool that God gives us. Let me show you the second one. The second tool, we're froze up here, the second tool that God gives to reduce the frustration of living under the curse is, is the hope of heaven's tabulation. There's a tribunal coming. It's a perfect one. It's the Lord's. But heaven keeps a record of everything that you do on the earth. 
good or bad. And so it's not futile. Look at verse 19. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. One dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath. And there is no advantage for man over beast, for all is vanity. And all go to the same place, in verse 20. All came from the dust, and all returned to the dust. What tools does God give us to live under the curse? His sovereignty, which, which gives us confidence. Somebody's in control. God is. His judgment. That's where we put our trust. And then finally, this, this, this hope of heaven. And when you first read verse 19, it kind of sounds odd, doesn't it? I mean, man and beast are the same. But when you understand what Solomon's saying here, it's a treasure trove of wisdom. Solomon has already talked about death, but now he's going to give us wisdom about how to handle it. I mean, he says there's a time to die, and now he's going to give specific wisdom in light of the fact that that time's coming for you while you're living in an unjust world. So he looks around, and first he sees that death makes no distinction. Between, between men and, and animals, and that's, that's profoundly frustrating. I mean, you say that's the odd part. It, it, I mean, it, it sounds a little unbiblical that we're compared to animals. I mean, doesn't the Bible say that we're made in God's image and we're a little lower than the angels? Yes, it does, and nothing that Solomon says here contradicts that or negates that. You have to remember that Solomon is giving a commentary on Genesis 3. I mean, he's not revealing everything about man. He's revealing something specific about mankind related to the fall. And that something specific is death. And human beings, good or bad, die just like animals do because of the fall, because of the curse. Now, even though we bear the image of God, unlike every other part of creation, we die like the rest of creation because of the curse. That's what he's saying. The Bible makes the same analogy in, in several places. But man in his pomp will, will endure. He is like the beasts that perish. Verse 15, God will redeem my soul from the, from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Solomon's saying the same thing here. Look at verse 19 again. For what happens to the children of men and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so does the other. It's just making a statement about death. So he's making a specific comparison. You can see that. They both come from the dust. They both return to the dust. And because of the fall, we end up in the same place the beasts do, dead. And he says if there's a special place and plan for man, it doesn't seem to look like it whenever I... I look at death. And isn't that reality frustrating? When you're young, you, you think, well, there's always tomorrow. There's always a, the next election, or whatever you tell yourself. And then after a while, you, you realize you're, you're going to run out of time. Whatever your cause is. And it won't be fixed. There's still going to be sinful people here doing sinful things. But Solomon doesn't leave us there. Look at verse 21. And who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of beast ascends downward to the earth. I mean, Solomon says in verse 20, we die. But here he says that there's also a difference. We die just like animals, but there's a difference. Man's spirit will live forever. It ascends upward. 
When Solomon looks around, he comes face to face with death. There's nothing that robs his sense of satisfaction and sense of purpose more than the fact that you have a limited amount of time on the earth. Just like Moses, 70, maybe 80 years if you're good. And if you dedicate all 80 years to whatever is a good cause, when that 80 years is done, you may have made a dent in it, but, but it's like a drop in the bucket. And that's frustrating. I mean, what's the use to accumulate anything if you're just going to die? What's the use to work if, if you're going to leave everything behind and, and you're going into the ground? That's the frustration. But Solomon says the tool that will negate that frustration is remembering there's an eternity. And that whatever you do on this earth before you go into the ground, your spirit's going to ascend upward. And there, that's whenever the Lord's record is going to matter. And that gives you a reason to be righteous here even though you're going to die, even though you'll never straighten out what is crooked. Don't read this like a question, like Solomon doesn't know the answer, like, like who knows whether it'll go upward and, and the animal will, will go downward. He's already told us that he, what his position is. He's already told us in verse 17, there's a judgment coming for the righteous and the wicked, and that judgment obviously comes after death. So Solomon's already declared that mankind after death goes before God. Here he's just saying as he looks around, I mean, they go to the same place that the animal does. And after death, just like the animal, there's a question. He's asking you the question. Have you ever thought about the answer? That you die like an animal, but your spirit goes before God. Because that's where you'll find wisdom in knowing that death is coming. He's saying, who among you has thought about where man's spirit goes? which is different from where an animal goes. Because if you haven't thought about that, you're going to have the wrong view of death, and you're going to have lots of futility, because the spirit of man ascends upward, and then it lives forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, not 70, 80 years. And Solomon says, think this through, and that will help you, the tool to deal wisely with the brevity of life and the fact that it ends, is that God will call the spirit that he gave you to begin with back to himself and... That makes the world worth living. Life after death is full of reward for those who are faithful here and full of reckoning for those who are not. I mean, God doesn't just keep a record and then judge the wicked and the righteous accurately. He rewards them both. And heaven is the place that those rewards happen. That's what Solomon's saying. And while you, you might leave earthly things behind, what you do with those earthly things actually creates a record in heaven. I mean, doesn't that make life worth living, the fact that you're going to face death? You get the credit in eternity for the deductions you make here, and Solomon says that will reduce your frustration. You're still going to die. We're all going to die. What's after death? And if what's after death is you're going to stand before the Lord as, as His faithful servant, then that means all the stuff you do here, even in the face of injustice, matters. Death comes, but there is more after that for the believer. For an unbeliever, it goes from bad to worse. You spend your whole life trying to get, get ahead, and all you get is stress, and, and, and then you leave it all behind, and then after death, you, it, it gets even more empty. You go to hell. But Solomon says for the believer, work has a purpose. We can leave behind resources to the gospel. We, we can train others to do the same, and, and that's how we live with eternity in view. You see what he's saying? If there is a judgment, 
and there is a heaven, then there is not a single effort that you put forth or penny that you give that God doesn't grant in, in return. And even when you stand for righteousness and declare right and you get trampled every single time, it's worth it because you're standing for the Lord and God keeps a record. He will judge those who trample you and He will also give you reward for standing in His stead. Verse 22, he says this will bring happiness even in the fallen world. Remember all of this. Look what he says, how he wraps all this up. I've seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities. Well, this is his lot. Well, how can you be happy with injustice and death? For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? That's how you'll be happy. This is one of the places where the better than is in the original. I've seen there is nothing better that a man should be happy in his activities. For this is his lot. The idea is if you apply these tools, God's sovereignty, his coming judgment, the reality of everlasting life, then it will give you the ability to, to enjoy life here. And, and without these three tools, it, it'll feel almost insufferable. If God's not in control, that means man or sin is, and, and they're just getting away with it, and it's just horrible. And if there's not a coming judgment where God will make things right that are wrong, then, then nobody's going to pay, and that's horrible. And if this is all there is, and we just go in the ground like an animal, then, then there's no meaning to life, and that guts enjoyment now. It even, it even kills the mantra, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we, we die. I mean, that doesn't work because God's put an eternity in your heart. So as hard as you try to eat and drink and be merry, you can't because you know this is temporary and, and that steals all of your, your merriness. And then we die like animals. In verse 22, Solomon asked the question, who will bring me to see what will occur after this? And the only answer is God, and that's what he's doing right here in Ecclesiastes. And he does that through Jesus Christ. Solomon says God's got a better plan for, for living than living without him. He says, repent while you can and come to Christ, and then remember, if you've done that, remember I'm sovereign. Trust in my tribunal. Know that everlasting life is coming, and that will bring meaning and joy to this one even though this one's crooked and will never be made straight. Don't you bow your heads. Father, the, the Bible, your word, rightly interprets reality. And we need a continual and constant reinterpretation because... We're fallen and we're frail and we fear and we look around and we get frustrated and we get angry. And, and some of the things that frustrate us and create our anger are, are, are legitimate. And yet you bring us to this place every week and remind us that there is a king. And he sits above the circle of the earth. And that you have created a kingdom. A kingdom is coming one day. And until that day, we long for it. 
that kingdom is, is unfolding. It's in our hearts and in the church. You show us. You show the unbelieving world what, what it's like to trust you and, and walk before you. So thank you for, for your word. And thank you for these tools. Um, we have one more left. And, uh, and yet, you've had us listen to this one today. And I pray that, that the work that you needed to do, correction, encouragement, whatever it is, we, we would receive and you would do it. And Lord, I pray that if there's someone listening or, or even here, they know. And they've heard that justice is coming for them. And yet you're delaying that for your mercy. And so they can repent. I pray that today they would do that. You desire them to do that. And I pray they would. And I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.